You're listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. This episode features audio from a previously aired live video webcast. to Sagas and Sass Season 4, brought to you by Geek Saga Entertainment. I'm Tara, along with fellow hosts Nick and Jonathan. This episode will cover Gold, Part 3 of Red Rising, the first installment in Pierce Brown's Red Rising Saga. If you're watching live, join us in the chat, or after the fact, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Sagas and Sass, or email us at sagasandsass at gmail.com to continue the conversation. Additionally, please note that the views expressed in the show are those of the hosts as individuals and do not necessarily represent the show as a whole. And don't forget that we now have a Patreon. With 10 tiers ranging from $1 a month to $40 a month, it offers tons of ways to support us and receive some great perks in return. You can check it out at patreon.com slash geeksaga underscore entertainment. We left Darrow alone in a room with the body of Julian the fellow gold he had to kill in order to truly enter the Institute. And that is where we find him again at the beginning of part three. Yikes! He realizes that he has to bear the guilt of what he did and keep on keeping on, so he leaves his lonely little room covered in blood and makes his way through the medieval-style castle that is home to House Mars. He encounters other students, and eventually they all gather in the dining hall, where they are soon met by Fitchner, the House Mars proctor. Fishner explains the game. First, students will want to become the primus of their house by earning points. And then they want to beat all the other houses, which they can do by using their house standard, a sort of scepter, to make slaves of the other students. Cool motive, but still slavery. And here Darrow thought that they would be studying classrooms, but nope, that's not how fame and power are won in this society. Hmm. Using power and status to make others do your bidding. It sounds strangely familiar. The very next morning, Fitchner takes them on a tour of their territory, ending at the very edge of it, which butts up to that of House Ceres. They watch as a giant picnic is set out in the fields before them, and Darrow and Cassius decide to race down to the bounty, because of course they do. But of course it's a trap. The House Ceres students are hiding in the grass, and a fight ensues, one which Darrow and Cassius will pretty easily win and gaining a good bit of food and even some weapons, including a reaper's scythe that Darrow takes for his own because it reminds him of his sling blade from the mines. So, yeah, things start off fairly well for House Mars, but they quickly devolve, as the members argue about what to do next and refuse to rally behind any one leader. They end up divided into their own little tribes, and while one, led by Titus, a big, angry brute of a gold, is the first to take a slave, Darrow's little crew, which includes Cassius, a slim boy named Roke, uh, who Darrow calls a poet, and two girls named Leah and Quinn, among others, is the one that finds a small cache of food and matches. This cache allows them to feed themselves while Titus's group goes hungry, but that only makes them more and more desperate and nasty as the days tick by. The proctors do nothing, because why would they? And things become more and more violent. Finally, Darrow comes up with a plan to do something since, you know, apparently no one else will. The plan, which involves allying with Antonia, who is clearly her own sort of trouble, hits a roadblock right out of the gate when Titus captures Quinn and sends them her ear. Because, of course, this asshole is all about maiming people, even members of his own house. 
We also learned that Titus has likely been assaulting the slaves he's taken, and sexual assault is heavily implied. Now, Cassius could, and clearly should, have waited for Darrow and Roke to come back around before rushing off to rescue his damsel in distress, but he didn't. And return, in return, earns himself a beatdown and a circle piss. Yes, you heard that right. Titus and some of his tribe surround Cassius and pee on him. Cool, 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 cool. Getting Quinn back is obviously imperative, so they go ahead with the next step of Darrow's plan, which, by the way, involves using another house, in this case Minerva, to storm their own castle so that they can win it back from Titus. Not that this goes exactly as planned either. In fact, the only reason Darrow and Cassius don't end up captured by Mustang, the House Minerva Primus, is because their fellow Mars member Severo comes to their aid. You see, Severo has been out and about as a tribe of one, killing wolves and keeping an eye on things from afar. But this kicks off his alliance and friendship with Darrow, and that's a really good thing, because all this time, Severo has been the only one who truly seems to know what is going on. He even thought to sneak into the Mars castle, steal their own standard, and bury it in the woods so that the Minervans couldn't get a hold of it. Honestly, at this point, it's clearly the most valuable player, and we kind of wonder why he wants to bother with Darrow at all. But hey, lucky Darrow, we guess, especially as he, Severo, and Cassius then fairly easily break into Minerva's castle and steal their cook, some of their horses, and that coveted standard, which they cart back to the Mars castle for the real clash with House Minerva. The clash actually ends with negotiations, as Darrow wants to trade the Minervan standard for the Mars castle and everyone in it. Mustang wants to keep Titus to ensure that justice is meted out, but Darrow promised that job to Cassius, because, oh, by the way, Cassius thinks it was Titus who killed Julian, a conclusion he sort of came to on his own, but one which Darrow helps him at. So Minerva gets their standard back, Mars gets their castle back, and Titus is found in the dungeons having already been beaten after the Minervans found the mistreated slave girls in his tower. Darrow confronts him about what he did, but Titus has no regrets, and even goes off on a tangent about how he only did what has, was done to her, and that he was doing to their daughters what was done to her. And in the midst of this rant, he lets slip a single telling word, bloody damn. And it's with that word that Darrow realizes he is not the lone carved red at the instant because Titus is a red too. Far from being relieved, Darrow knows that Titus is a mad dog who must be put down before he really slips up and reveals who he is, likely putting Darrow and many others in danger. Everyone, Darrow's friends and even the proctors, is totally okay with Darrow getting rid of Titus for good and all, though his friends don't agree with him letting Cassius do the deed. Still, what's done is done, and then it's time for another alliance. And this time it's Darrow and Severo who hike out to find House Diana and offer them a deal. Help Mars take Minerva, and Mars will help Diana take Sirius. Now, despite the snide comments and threats from a Diana student named Tactus, their primus, Tamara, agrees to the deal, and sure enough, they're able to take the Minervan's castle. With the help of a distraction from Darrow, who challenges a Minervan named Paxa Telemannus to a <laughs> duel, and with the use of a bunch of dead horses, because a bunch of the Mars and Diana students are sewn up into the horses' bellies and burst out at just the right time. I'm sure there's a horse joke here or a dead horse joke here, but moving on. Mustang, the person, of course, does escape, and House Diana does in fact attempt to backstab Mars by locking them out of Minerva's castle. 
but they fail because Severo is inside with them and wreaks havoc on their food and water supplies, among other things. The members of House Diana try to escape, but are caught, and so all's well that ends well. Or not, because then a strange, scary girl named Lilith from House Pluto shows up to offer Cassius a deal. Take Darrow out, and her primus, the jackal, will give him a whole bunch of fancy weapons. Cassius refuses, but pockets a little pouch that she gives him. A pouch that Darrow then asks Severo to uh, confiscate for him. At this point, Darrow should be primus of House Mars. But before the honorifics can be bestowed, he is lured out of the castle by Antonia and her little band, who lay a trap for him involving his friends Roke and Leah. Leah is killed, Roke is missing, but Darrow skirts the trap. Only to end up in a second one, because Cassius figured out that Severo was trying to steal that pouch. So Cassius watched the hollow that was in it, which showed a recording of Darrow killing Julian, and tricks Darrow into following him out of the castle by claiming Roke had been found. They duel, but Cassius is a god among golds at this over anything else, so it's over quickly, and Darrow is left bleeding out in the mud from a big old gut wound. Talk about a short-lived win. Going back to the very beginning of the summary, <laughs> <laughs> when Darrow kills Julian, he's beside himself at the end of part two, but he's still in that place at the beginning of part three, saying, there's nowhere to wipe the blood, only stone and two naked bodies. This is not who I am, who I want to be. I want to be a father, a husband, a dancer. Let me dig the earth. Let me sing the songs of my people and leap and spin and run along the walls. I would never sing the forbidden song. I would work. I would bow. Let me wash dirt from my hands instead of blood. I want only to live with my family. We were happy enough. Dude, I get it. I get the regression. Mm -hmm. But it's way too late. It's way too late to be having these thoughts. <sighs> you can't go back. Literally, physically, you can't go back. You, you don't look like you anymore in any way, shape, or form. So it just seems like a really false hope isn't the word I'm looking for, but like just empty wishes. Yeah, definitely. But was he happy enough? I mean, I don't know. It seemed like a pretty miserable existence. The point was basically he, did, he would rather go back to that ignorance than to live with having to have killed effectively an innocent. And knowing going forward that it's probably... Yeah, it's not going to be better. more innocence that he ends up getting in his way. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, though. Was he happy? Yeah, he was. I think that's something we talked about a little bit in episode 51, where we covered parts one and two of this book. He was happy in his ignorance he still thought he could win the laurel even after he yeah. knew that it was rigged that it was a rigged game he was like eh, i still got eo he was yep. very happy in his ignorance as a lot of people are in real life too but it's still just oh man darrow you can't go back way too late you literally are an entirely different person now <laughs> yeah it wasn't until eo was executed that he started to become radicalized and even then, he would rather have followed her to the grave. And the only reason he didn't is because um, the Sons of Aries brought him to the surface and showed yeah. him the world, literally. Fitchner says, tonight you finally did something yourselves. You beat a baby, just like you. But that's worth about as much as a pink whore's fart. Our little society balances on the tip of a needle. The other colors would rip your gory damn hearts out, given the chance. And then... 
There's the silvers, the coppers, the blues. You think they'd be loyal to a bunch of babies? You think the obsidians will follow little turds like you? Those baby stranglers would make you their little cuddle slaves if they saw weakness. So you must show none. Titus grunts, So what? The Institute is supposed to make us tough? Fitchner replies, No, you colossal oath. It's supposed to make you smart, cruel, wise, and hard. It's supposed to age you 50 years and 10 months and show you what your ancestors did to give you this empire. And of course, soon after that, there's the whole back and forth where they discuss how they win the game, which, as we mentioned mm-hmm. in the summary, is by beating all the others, right? By capturing all the others. Yeah, capturing, enslaving, beating all the other houses, becoming the primus of the prime house, basically. But this passage is what I wanted to share particularly because it gives a little bit more insight into the colors in the society than we've had before, particularly the obsidians. He literally calls them baby stranglers. So that's like a, ooh, what's happening there? Yeah. I'm sure we'll find out eventually. But but Titus's response is like, oh, so it's just supposed to make you tough. And Fisher says, no, it's it makes you all of these things. Now, he does also say 10 months. That's very interesting because I think that's the only time it's ever mentioned how long they are actually supposed to be at the Institute. And I glossed over it in every single previous read, honestly. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to note because, yes, they are there for 10 months. That's a long fucking time, man. Also, why yeah. 10 months? Like, why 10? Yeah, that's weird. Because you got to clean it up for the next group and two months later <laughs> and, and stay on schedule for the next class. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You might be right. It's very interesting. Like, I'd never noticed that 10 months thing before, but also the fact that being the house that defeats all the other houses, or even just not being that house, but being the house that is trying, like all the other houses are, you're all trying to beat the other houses. And in those attempts, you're going to become smart, cruel, wise, and hard, things that they're all smart, right? But he means street smarts, basically. That's actually something that's driven home several times in part three, is that there are high drafts, Darrow, uh, Ashes, Mustang, Shirley, Roke, yeah. And there are mid-drafts, Quinn and Leah. Quinn for sure was a mid-draft. I don't remember about Leah. And I then she was too. Low there draft. are low drafts like Severo, Julian. I mean, Severo was absolutely not supposed to survive the passage. Yes. He was put up against um Priam. what's his fuck? Priam. Yeah. 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 Which surprised me because like Priam apparently didn't have to take any of the tests to get into the institute, but he still had to go through the passage. And it's like, okay. So, well, they pitted him against literally the, the last drafted person, so they thought it was a sure thing. But it was Severo, and Severo is an angry little boy with a wolf problem. Or maybe he's a and has wolf, or maybe crazy he's a good wolf. survival instinct. Maybe he's a wolfy little boy with an angry problem. I don't <laughs> yeah. know, but whatever he is, he's the fucking best. And he's a basically more than a foot shorter than everyone. Yeah, he's small. Yeah, he's like the runt. Darrow refers to him as, as like a bronzy a couple times. I don't remember if it was in the yes. part one and two or part three that he does. I must have I cheated and looked it up at the wiki, but most of the, the gold males are like between six, eight and seven plus feet. Mm-hmm. And he was below six feet. Below six feet? So like average male height today? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Despite what well. you all say on your driver's licenses, you liars. 
since we're talking about people killing people in the passage, several killing Priam, I do want to chat a bit about Cassius trying to get people to say who they killed. Yep. I love how Severo just walks out because he don't give no shits because he's like, <laughs> fuckers, I killed Priam. Ha! And then Darrow kind of tries to ignore it by chatting with Roke and Titus instead. And this brings Titus to the forefront in that Darrow specifically says Titus isn't funny. It's like everything is a joke to him. He's sneering at Darrow, he, at everyone even though he's smiling, it's not a real smile. It's sneering. And mm-hmm. what he's saying is innocuous, but Darrow hates him. He says it's like Titus doesn't think he's human, just a chess piece that he's waiting to like move around. Oh, wait, no, 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 shove around. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he forgot to be 17 or 18 like the rest. He is a man, which is funny because that's just a reminder that they are all actually that young because a lot of times in this in this book particularly in this part where they're all going at each other it doesn't seem like they're that young but they are but that's some insight into Titus he's dangerous but also maybe kind of dumb because I mean Darrow is seeing right through him immediately then he's talking about Rogue and he says you know Rogue on the other hand reminds me of my brother Kieran if Kieran could kill his smiles are kind his words patient and wistful and wise and Leah who comes back from the passage limping and Darrow kind of several times throughout particularly the first half of part three makes comments about how she seems kind of weak and like a follower and mm-hmm. one of them, because he says Le- Leo follows Roke everywhere, and Roke is patient with her in a way that Darrow couldn't be. So it's just very quickly we're getting a really great show-don't-tell scenario where we're learning more about the students without it feeling like we're just being told Titus is a jerk, Roke <laughs> is special, Leah is annoying. Well, I didn't pick up Leah as annoying. Leah was in some ways the most damaged of the people from the passage and that she was trying to get support. That's how I interpreted her. It wasn't, she was not necessarily weak or a follower, but she was just trying to hang on to something. I agree, but I'm not talking about how I feel about Leah. I'm talking about how Darrow feels about Leah. (laughs) Darrow's very clear about how he feels. Darrow's very judgmental. There is very judgmental. And like in a way, it's kind of like, oh, okay, rightfully so. He has been through a lot. And I'm not just talking about the passage. <laughs> I did feel like this is a, a really good way of helping us get to know some of these characters who become very important very mm-hmm. quickly without there being too much exposition. Kind of immediately, they are brought out of the castle by Fitchner. He shows them all of their lands, which suck, by the way. Very clearly, yeah. especially as soon as they get down to series and there's this Hunger Games style like cornucopia. As much as people compare these books to the Hunger Games, particularly the first one, I don't like that because I don't feel like that's a not even close to a one to one comparison. Right? right. This is not the Hunger Games. But this particular scene where there's a cornucopia, not literally, but figuratively set out for them 
Yeah, yep. I see the Hunger Games reference here. And the fact that Fishner brings them right to House Ceres after it being very clear that their map at their castle isn't filled in because they need to discover the other houses for themselves. Am I the only one who thought they should have sensed that being a trap before they did? Oh, 100%, yeah. They don't, though. Darrow and Cash just run down to the picnic that's been set out. And I love the line, they're in the grass, a trap. And this reminds me of the Velociraptors <laughs> in Trap <laughs> and the Lost World. Oh, not 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 Admiral Akbar. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, yes and no. I mean, anytime you say, it's a trap, it's Admiral Akbar. But in this case, the, the they're in the grass. Reminds me so much of Jurassic Park and the Lost World because mm-hmm. in Jurassic Park, I think Muldoon says they're in the trees, and then in the Lost World, somebody straight up says like they're in the grass. But yeah, definitely a trap. But the thing I really want to focus on is in this particular scene is how hilarious Fitchner and the head of House Series are together. Yeah, they're just like let's fuck. <laughs> yeah, and it's so funny because of the way Darrow describes Fitchner. Especially later in part three, Darrow gets more into how kind of gross, quote unquote, Fitchner is for a gold. But in this particular instance, he and the head of house series are just like, "Ah, mm, ah," talking in their high lingo. I don't know that Pierce does the best at, in this particular scene, I see it calling it high lingo, right? Where they're being just real hoity-toity. I suppose. But there's mm-hmm. other times where Darrow makes a comment. There's another time when Cassius is, is talking to Titus and Darrow says Cassius drops into high lingo or whatever. And it, as he responds to Titus being kind of a jerk. And am I the only one that feels like most of the time there's really no difference in the high lingo and however else they talk? I didn't even notice it. It's a very slight changes, uh, but otherwise it's basically the same. So... We've already talked about how Fitchner describes them, that the point isn't to kill the other students. The point is to win. They want they want these students to be brilliant, like Alexander, mm-hmm. Napoleon, Merriwater. They name all these amazing you know, battle commanders. They want them to learn to manage an army, distribute justice, arrange for provisions of food and armor. So the role is to find leaders of men, not killers of men. Points... Not to kill, but to conquer. And this is the point where Darrow says, you make one tribe out of 12 by taking slaves. He's the one who says it first. And it's just like the society built on the backs of others. It isn't cruel. It is practical. And I just like, really, Fitchner, you're comparing these children. And even if they're 18, okay, sorry, even in today's world, 18 is still a child. I don't care if you're legally an adult, you are still a child in the sense of knowledge and everything. So the fact that they want to make these children into these great commanders, now to be fair, a lot of them were very young when they first commanded armies, but also, I mean, maybe these aren't the best examples. (laughs) Alexander, Caesar, literally stabbed in the back, Napoleon, failed because he tried to conquer Russia. And what about Meriwater? I want to know about him. I honestly, off the top of my head, don't know who Meriwater is. I think it was a made-up character. I think Meriwater might have been part of the conquering. Yeah, not something from history. 
Yeah. And it's funny because Pierce Brown does this often. He'll make a list of real people and then drop in fake name, whether it's from his universe or at one point he drops in a name from Ender's Game. But I like that Pierce Brown does this. So this is where we realize that they have to take slaves. It's soon after this that they all go back to their castle and Titus kind of gets rude with Cassius and Cassius is like, watch your manners, man. And... (laughs) Titus looks at Cassius and then looks at Darrow and Darrow says, we're immediately grouped together. We are a tribe in everyone's eyes. Titus looks at Darrow and he's calling him out, but Darrow just holds Titus's gaze and spins his knife in his dexterous fingers. So dexterous. Listen, the amount of times Piers Brown writes about Darrow's dexterous hands slash fingers. Isn't that supposed to give us a hand fetish? Clearly. Somebody has a hand fetish. I, I think know. Pierce Brown has a hand fetish. Perfect. In part one, I think, he ta- like Darrow straight up talks about how he uses his dexterous hands with EO, so. And in his day job, but, you know. <laughs> eh. So, as they're going back and forth, kind of revisiting the idea of taking slaves, Roke says, I do wonder sometimes as to the purpose of all this. How can this be the most efficient method of testing our merit of making us into beings who can rule the society? They have us here because this valley was humanity before gold ruled, fractured, disunited, even in our very own tribe. They want us to go through the process that our forefathers went through. Step by step, this game will evolve to teach us new lessons. Hierarchies within the game will develop. We'll have reds, golds, coppers, and... Cassius asks if there will be pinks and he's kind of like hopeful about it, which ew, <laughs> dude, come on. Cause that's exactly what Titus does later. And then you get mad about it. Cassius is a huge hypocrite. I'm sorry. Not sorry. Oh yeah. He 100% is. I mean, not to jump ahead too much, but like Darrow basically calls him out on his hypocrisy right before Cassius stabs him. Yeah. It's one of those things where I wasn't going to necessarily focus on it on the passage as a whole but i do want to focus on the fact that cassius is it literally says he asks hopefully if there will be pinks and roke is super uncomfortable which good for Mm -hmm. you ma'am good for you but roke is super uncomfortable with this and then later cassius is flipping his shit because titus is treating the slaves like pinks and granted yes you should be mad about that that shouldn't be happening Pinks shouldn't exist at all if we're really going to get into that. But that's a story for another time. But you can't, in one hand, hopefully be like, oh, so there will be pinks too. And then in the next, be pissed off. Was it just because it was Titus and not you that was doing it? Was it because Titus... I think it was the methodology. Yeah, it was because Titus was being violent about it and you wouldn't be? Dude, it's still rape. Yeah. But I think... Because of Cassius's upbringing, the pinks he has probably dealt with his whole life are what I would call high pinks. And while, yes, you might say that is, we know the society that's not their choice, I think it was considered much more like acceptable to be a courtesan than a streetwalker. So that that's my only semi sort of defense of Cassius here, that his upbringing is even amongst gold is so elite that the types of every different other cast he's dealt with have tended to be the higher of that cast. You can defend him a little bit, but also it's still 
The other thing I think that's, I don't know if it's important to distinguish, and it is in no way trying to defend Cassius because I don't think he's defendable. I go back to drawing lots of parallels to our actual society. Like to me, Red Rising is essentially a continuation of the social standings that we've created for ourselves and the hierarchies that exist within those. And if I think about people who come from the highest levels of society, I don't think they see having people serve them in whatever capacity that is as a bad thing. They're giving them a place. But to do that in a way that is incredibly violent and uh, more visceral, I think that kind of breaks through Cassius's worldview of what a pink is versus taking a slave and then raping them. I'm not saying there should be a distinguishment between those because I think, you know, like in our society, for a long time, people distinguish between date rape and rape, but it's still all fucking rape, right? So I don't think there is any justification there, but I think that is kind of where Cassius's double standard comes from. Yeah. Again, I don't disagree. It's like, it's still bad, but... Yeah. It's all fucking rape and it's all terrible because even if you're a high pink or whatever, you can't consent to something that you have been systemically oppressed into. Mm -hmm. Comparing to the real world versus this, yes, this is systemically oppressed into, the oppressed into with no options. In real society, you have options. Now, your option may be be a red or be a pink, but you you generally have options. In this world, there's no options. In our world, the real world, when you use the comparison about our our own social structure and the limit, the, the failures of it. Yes, you have a red, and yes, it's hard to move between classes, but it's somewhat doable. And even amongst the low classes, you're not, at least in the United States, you're not forced into one versus the other. Now, there are countries where you pretty much are, or at least were, India, for example, with the caste system there. But um, I mean, I would argue that while that's theoretically true, the vast majority of people do end up somewhat blocked into constrained choices at best, if not outright being forced to take on specific roles. Yes. When you're at the very bottom rung, your limit, your choices are limited, but in this society, you don't even have that choice at the middle rungs of whether to do something different. Sure. But there aren't very many middle rung people in our real <laughs> yeah. quote unquote world the vast majority is the bottom rungs and then the small percentage is the higher rungs that you have the hierarchies within those two sets but we've effectively lost the middle rungs at this point mm-hmm. we certainly have shrunk them <laughs> yeah uh, yeah speaking of high rungs <laughs> <laughs> cassius makes a comment about antonia that i wanted to talk about He says, if our families hadn't spent holidays together when we were little things, I might have called her out as a Democrat. And by the way, in Red Rising, Democrat is spelled with a K, not a C, on the first day. But she's hardly that. More like Caesar. There they go with Caesar again. Or 
what did they call them? President's President. tyrant in necessities clothing. <laughs> what a great and, social commentary that was. Yes. And, you know, then Darrow is like, oh, she's a turd in the swill bowl. And there's this whole sort of inner conflict with Darrow because it's a red saying from his uncle Narrow, and he passes it off as something he heard from high red. And mm-hmm. Cassius goes into bitching about his nanny who was a high red and told him stories and he thought she was an uppity bugger. And <sighs> you'd think Darrow would get angry, but instead he just gets like sad because yeah. then Cassius brings up Julian and Darrow goes to his dark place about Julian and listen, Darrow, I get it. You feel bad about Julian, but also this is one of those points where when Titus very much later in this part, he says, I thought you and I were the same, but no, you care about these people. And this is one of those points where it's like, I, I see what you're saying, Titus. I don't love, I, I don't like you. I don't like what you did. I hate what you mm-hmm. did. You're, you're awful. But I see what he means because even at this moment, Darrow probably should have been pissed about Cassius talking shit about his su- supposed uppity bugger high red nanny when instead Darrow gets just upset about Juliet. Yeah. I mean, the whole point of Darrow becoming a gold is so that he can essentially overthrow, which is usually a nice way of saying kill a bunch of golds. So the his whole moral conflict over killing Julian and then, you know, later being like, oh, well, I kind of like Cassius. I kind of like these specific golds. It's like, well, but the point of you and the whole point of you choosing to take on this role was so that you could get revenge and basically do as much damage to the golds as possible. Yeah, but... That's true in a in a vacuum. It changes once you know people, right? I mean, you're far less likely if you don't know someone. It's easy to ignore their humanity. If you actually know sure. them personally, it's a much more difficult thing to do. Yeah, like if I infiltrated a bunch of Nazis, it'd be a lot harder for me to punch a Nazi that I knew in the face than a Nazi that I don't know. But I'm still going to punch a Nazi in the face. Yeah. And I think some of the difficulty here lies in the fact that these are people, young, very young people, children really, who were raised in the society and they've never seen a different side of things, right? So I think that there's a part of Darrow, because after he meets Julian and then has to kill him and realizes he had to kill this kind person. I think this is the beginning of Darrow, or that was the beginning of Darrow seeing that they're kind of good in these people. And while he still has this constant inner diatribe of how he needs to conquer them, he is also seeing their humanity and seeing that, even hoping that they only think this way or see this way because this is how they were raised. And he's still focused on, I'm going to have to off these people. But he's not in Titus' realm where that's the first thing he goes to because he knows that in order to facilitate the rebellion that he is supposed to eventually be at the head of, hopefully, he needs to get close to them. And unfortunately, in getting close to them, he is also realizing that there is good in some of them. Sure as hell, not all of them. But... Now, saying that... Funny thing is, only one tribe has a silver shits idea what's going on. And it's not ours. It's not Antonia's. 
It's Severos, and I'm nearly certain he's the only member of that tribe, unless he's adopted wolves by now. It's hard to say if he has or hasn't, or else does not have family dinners. Though occasionally we'll see him running along the hillsides at night in his wolf skin, looking, as Cassius put it best, like some sort of hairy demon child on hallucinogens. And once, Roke even heard something, not a wolf, howling in the shrouded highlands. So, as we learn, not too much later, Severo has just been surviving and doing the things that he knows to do, right? But I think that he's still there. He's not that far away, and he's clearly watching things. Because, obviously, later he saves Darrow and Cassius. He didn't have to do that. But he knew... He had learned, I believe, by being far away but close enough that Antonia is a piece of shit. Well, and also, I mean, really, you can kind of see that from Antonia from straight from the beginning. But Antonia is a piece of shit. Titus is a piece of shit. The people that follow Titus are awful. And several realizes, okay, this is the person who has the best chance of saving us i don't know i just i love that passage about severo and now he's the only one that has any clue what's going on he's the fourth mars tribe he's the only member i love every little bit and piece that we get about severo he mm-hmm. is my fave i love to when darrow basically gives him troops and they call them the howlers and severo starts like teaching him, them his ways they're just like this own little <laughs> division within the tribe it's fucking fantastic i love it well before we get too much into the howlers or anything we go back to fitchner finally uh, like showing up mm-hmm. and absent and this is when cassius is going on about how titus is treating the girls he takes as slaves like pinks sexually assaulting them and fitchner just excuses this which this is gross on both counts yeah is gross on both counts. Fitchner says, then prove you're a man and stop him. As long as he's not murdering them one by one, it's not our concern. All wounds heal, even these. And Darrow just says, that's a lie because he'll never be healed of EO. That pain will last forever. He says, some things do not fade. Some things can never be made right. And he's been forming a plan in his mind, but it's at this moment that he finally realizes that he can't just continue sitting back and letting things happen. And although his plan does not go according to as Quinn is captured and her ears cut off by Titus and Cassius goes after her and gets beaten and pissed on, this is where things really ramp up. I will say this about the first, I don't know if it's like half of part three, but the first like third at least, maybe more, I'm not sure. It's a lot of, oh my God, can you guys just get on with it already? Like, was (laughs) I the only one who felt that way? I mean, I've read this book so many times and it's really not until Darrow finally puts his foot down and says, nope, got a plan, let's go through with it, that it feels like things are actually happening. It didn't feel that way to me, but I think part of that is, I mean, this is my first time reading it and I was really interested in the ways that the tribes were kind of playing out and getting to learn a little bit more about the different characters because we get at least a little bit more of an understanding of Cassius and Roke and I mean, even Titus to an extent, as well as some of the more secondary characters in the tribes. I agree that like once we get past this point where Darrow's like, okay, I got to do something, it really picks up. But that that first third or however long 
didn't bother me in terms of pacing. That's interesting. I It's been so long since I first read Red Rising. I can tell you this. Maybe part one I felt was a little bit slow. But then the second I started on part two, I was actually on vacation. But I was like waiting to meet up with a friend for lunch. And I really got into the carving and everything. Mm-hmm. And then I had to meet my friend for lunch. I was like, God damn, I don't want to do this. <laughs> so I met my friend for lunch. And I immediately, as soon as we're done, go back to my hotel room and finish the book. I finished the book in mm-hmm. Like a few hours. I read so fast. I was in Chicago and I walked to the nearest Barnes and Noble and they didn't have it in stock. And they're like, oh, but this other Barnes and Noble two miles away has it. Here's the bus route if you need it. I was like, no, I'll just walk. It's fine. I should see the city and be out more. The weather's nice, whatever. So I walked two miles each way to a Barnes and Noble <laughs> to buy Golden Sun so that I could start wow. it that day. So I can't remember exactly when the point was. I think it was the carving, but it could have been when Darrow killed Julian. I'm not quite sure. But I guess rereading it as many times as I have, this portion where it's the sort of tribal infighting, at times it's absolutely interesting, but it isn't until Darrow actually decides, now I'm going to do something about this that I felt at least this time around, okay, we're really getting into it here. There's a lot that happens. Cassius comes back. He's basically lost in terms of leadership because he's been... Yeah, there's no way he can be leader after that. Right. So now Darrow is absolutely the leader. And he takes Severo. They go, they meet with House Diana. They form an alliance. There's a lot of really great back and forth in the midst of that, where we hear from Fitchner that we used to go to school, right? The reason this isn't what you thought it would be, a university where you just sit around reading books, is because we have widgets and data pads and lower colors to do research. They don't study chemistry or physics, which oof, sounds like a bad idea, dudes, considering yeah. what you're doing. But they have computers and other people. So they study humanity because in order to rule, they have to study political, psychological, and behavioral science and how desperate human beings treat one another, how packs form, <laughs> several, and <laughs> how armies function, how things fall apart and why. And the Institute is the only place they will learn this. And, you know, Darrow says, like, I understand the purpose. I learn more when I make mistakes so long as they don't kill me. And also that's just funny because he learned well from trying to be a martyr. (laughs) Or maybe he wasn't trying to be a martyr. He was just trying to die because Io was dead. But still, he he learned that lesson. He does actually ask Cassius to teach him cravat, which is sort of like a... I want to say it's like karate because there is... A physical aspect to it where there's kicks he can learn how to break tracheas use his hands to defend himself in a fight but it also involves a lot of discipline and darrow just wants to be an efficient fighter whereas cravat seems intent on teaching him inner peace and he says mm-hmm. that's a lost cause which i feel you darrow i really do everything that happens as they're going through this whole thing with forming an alliance with house diana taking down House Minerva, taking back their castle, getting rid of Titus. There's a huge lump of things that happens. It's a very short portion of part three, but it's it's kind of the most imperative part because it shows Darrow trying his best to be a leader. So I actually felt like that part moved a little too fast. 
not in an entirely bad way because I think you know you had to move things forward and you don't want to dwell too long on those because clearly there's still lots more that has to get dealt with but like you said it's like it's a lot that happens in a very short chunk of pages the reason they jumped on Darrow as the leader as opposed to Cassius was because of the issue he had getting Peter the piss so then the question is why Darrow as opposed to Roke or someone else because well, Roke's not a leader and Severo was off on his own so your your options were limited Severo also deliberately declines any form of leadership right like he takes Minerva's standard, standard and gives it to Darrow because he doesn't want that credit I think that is part of it but I also think that we have to remember their conversation in the woods when they are uh, going to treat with House Diana. Severo knows Darrow killed Julian. Darrow mm-hmm. figures out Severo killed Priam because mm-hmm. Severo has done all these things, mm-hmm. but Severo has no bars. He has no bars yeah. to his name. And Darrow realizes Severo is not going to That's get any true. bars because he killed Priam. The game was rigged. This game was rigged just like the Laurel. Just like the Laurel. Yep. Interestingly enough, and this is just kind of an aside, but as part of their little foray into the woods, as you will, Darrow does say about Severo, I want to tell him I'm a red. Some part of me thinks he is too, and some other part of me thinks he'll respect me more if he knows I am a red. I was not born privileged. I am like him, but Mm -hmm. I guard my tongue. There's no doubt the proctors watch us. And I don't think that it would have been a good idea for Daryl to tell <laughs> by any means. But but at the same time, I think that it's important that Darrow has already reached that point where he feels like he wants to. Yeah. Because there are times in part three where Darrow sides with Cassius on things. And actually, we'll talk about one thing in just a second, where you understand why Darrow sides with Cassius. But at the same time, the fact that he trusts Severo the way he does, the fact that he knows that Severo knows he's the one who killed Julian, but doesn't Mm -hmm. ever question that Severo is going to relay that information. And I think at one point, Darrow says he doesn't know what he did to deserve this loyalty. And like, fuck, I agree, Darrow, honestly. Severo is prime, and you are not so much at this point. But... Uh, I just I love Severo so much. Speaking on that, Severo later says he wants to kill the jackal, and Quinn is like, no, you can't be serious. Oh, what he is. And Cassius says he's serious and he's wrong. We're not monsters. Not you and I, at least, Darrow. Bologna Praetors aren't knives in the night. Oh, because by the way, Cassius has already named Darrow his brother at this point and said he's going to get him a job as his father's praetor we have 500 years of honor to guard and Severus says piss and lies cassius oh it's in the breeding insert upturned nose and Severus replies you're a pixie if you buy all that think your papa cut his way up to imperator by being honorable cassius just says Call it chivalry, goblin. It wouldn't be right trying to murder someone in cold blood, particularly not at a school. He says, despite the fact that they all had to murder someone to get to this point for fuck's sake, and despite the fact that not much later, Kasha straight up tries to murder Darrow over the Julian thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, but he tried to murder him over the Julian thing in a duel, which is chivalry. Okay, Cassius. <laughs> <laughs> 
cool moto, still murder. Uh, not in New Jersey, apparently. Everything's oh. legal in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> yes, here we go with Cassius's hypocrisy over and over and over again. Ugh, yep. I just Cassius. <sighs> So frustrating. I do want to go back just a little bit and talk about the alliance with House Diana and Mm -hmm. how they took down House Minerva, because that was great. Nick, as somebody who hadn't read the book before, what were your thoughts on the whole like Darrow challenges, Pax Atelamonis to a duel? (laughs) And then like in the end, it just turns out that there's a whole bunch of people hiding in dead horse bellies. Ah! Well, we knew something was up, right? Like, from the very beginning, we knew it wasn't just about the duel. I love Pax, by the way. Like, he's just such a fucking... I must fight everything! I appreciate the way it's all drawn out. And I fucking love Severo and his howlers coming out of the horses and just straight up, like, murdering people. That was such a amazing scene. Loved it. What are your thoughts on Tactus? Good question, because I'll be honest, I kind of kept forgetting about him. He was clearly such a fucking asshole, and in some ways he reminded me a little bit of Severo, but like a not-as-endearing kind of character. Yep. I think that he wasn't as endearing when they're in the woods meeting with House Diana and he's just being a dick. It's like, okay, I mean, listen, like it's all a game to everybody and he's egging his primus on. I get it. Mm -hmm. And then he hides in the dead horse belly and helps them take the castle. And it's like, okay, that's fine. You know, a little crazy, Mm -hmm. but it's fine. But then when House Diana tries to escape and fails, Tamara, his primus is trampled. Yep. Because he cut the girth on her saddle. And it's just... Well, we don't know that for sure. Oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) We don't know it for a fact. We just know it's true. So we can't do anything about it. I don't think they would anyway, though, honestly, at this point. No, probably not. Because they're just like, okay, so he's a snake in the grass. Or rather, a snake in the horse belly. (laughs) Yeah, fuck that dude. I don't know. I like Tactus because he's insane. I don't love him the way I love Severo, but I I like him. I appreciate him for He's being... a good character. He's very interesting saying it. We actually aren't given that much information about him, but the way that the information is delivered helps create this like interesting aspect to the character, is what I'm trying to say. Yes. I haven't I mean, read I mean, any further than we are. So as far <laughs> as I know, Dara's fucking dying. So what the fuck is up with that? It's just like Game of Thrones, where we will go to other characters. Everybody can die. Game of Thrones, we had other POVs yes. throughout the first book. It just was set up that, you know, Ned was, was like the hero PV, POV or whatever. We don't have any other POVs for this book. <laughs> also, I will say this, like, fuck Cassius, Roke is missing. As far as we know, he was kidnapped by Antonia and her crew and God knows what they did with him because Mm -hmm. Leah absolutely wasn't faking it. Leah was part of Darrow's tribe and she cared about, possibly even loved Roke. That was not a fake. Poor Leah. R.I.P. Leah, you deserve better. Because she was just murdered by Antonia. That was another thing, though. When that happened, I thought what had happened was that Cassius had found out and everybody had turned against Darrow and... He was being led into this trap. 
I didn't realize right away that it was just like Antonio was trying to fucking kill off Darrow on her own thing for no goddamn reason other than power. She wanted presumably. to be Primus. Yeah, exactly. Like it's a good reason. I mean, is it though to kill somebody? They literally are like, don't kill each other. That's like part of the whole thing. They didn't really say that. They just they did though. They yeah. they one hundred percent said you don't kill each other. From the beginning, they are they go up against Ceres, and they're like, so what do we do? Do we kill them? And they're like, no, you don't kill each other. That's not how this works. You already yeah. did that. Been there, done that. But did they mean it? Didn't It doesn't seem like it. Later, when Fishner finally comes back and is talking to them and Cassius is complaining about how Titus is treating the slaves, mm-hmm. Fishner straight up says, like, he's not killing them. So mm. Also, we have evidence that they'll let them get to a certain point, mm-hmm. but then they'll send in the, like, the med bots. bots or whatever to keep people from dying because there's several times where they talk about how people would have died were it yeah. not for the medics interfering and i think titus even says like he tried to kill people but couldn't essentially the only times people died aside from leah are through quote-unquote accidents titus engineers a death by having how series trample one of their own because they didn't know that the they were out there. The implication is, yes, it is possible to die, but you are not supposed to kill. And death can be used as a form of justice, as we saw with Titus. So yes. that was sanctioned. But it is not like a free-for-all, kill whoever the fuck you want, that's okay. And, you know, obviously I haven't read further ahead, so I don't know. But my guess would be that the medics end up saving Darrow... And so while we're left to think at the end of part three that he's dying, he won't actually die, and we will continue from his POV. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we'll get Severo's POV. I would fucking love that. I agree. I would always love Severo's POV. Maybe Pierce will just write a whole book that's from (laughs) Severo's POV. The other thing we haven't really talked about that I want to touch on real quickly is Mustang. How do we all feel about Mustang? Because it's one of those things where her and Darrow clearly have a rapport. They're constantly kind of teasing each other. Mm-hmm. When she relinquishes Mars Castle to him, she is saying, like, we want Titus. And Darrow says, no. And she kind of says, you need to grow up, dude. This is far deeper and more dangerous than you think it is. And the end of that sort of one-on-one between the two of them he says her eyes are imploring him yeah so he sees like a kindness in her and that is also part of why later the other part being vixis is fucking awful when they take house minerva and mustang escapes with the standard darrow sees vixis and sandra going after her and he follows them and he sees her hiding in the mud and he leads them away from her Mm -hmm. so that she can survive and that's really important. Part of it is because Vixus is there and Darrow is worried about what would happen, particularly as it's like two against one, Vixus and, and Cassandra against him if he just drags Mustang out of the mud. But I think yeah. also some of that is Mustang, man. He likes that wildness, that freedom in her, and he doesn't want to see her enslaved. He was enamored with her early on before they got to the Institute. Yes. He basically saw this hot blonde on a horse. There 
hot blonde. We've all been there. She talks about how hot Cassius is all the time. When Severo calls Cassius Darrow's butt boy, I'm just like, <clears throat> I love how Darrow is always like, Cassius's golden coils. <laughs> Darrow, Darrow. How do you really feel about Cassius? Tell us, please. He's always talking about how handsome Cassius <laughs> I love it. I love that there's that sense of, like, possibly maybe he's not totally straight. But he is He is enamored with Mustang. And I don't know that it was... I think for sure their brief encounter when he had his horseback riding lesson added to that. But what I really believe is that his encounters with her at the Institute, she's smart and pithy and quippy and he respects her he does and it also helps that when they take back mars castle he understands where she's coming from right like he still has to show that he's a leader and take back his castle from her and not give her anything in return other than her standard and her people but he sees that she's coming from a place of goodness i think and he doesn't want her to be harmed he doesn't want her to be enslaved. He wants her to be a Mustang, a literal wild free horse. Hence the nickname. I will never stop with my Mustang love. <laughs> so yes, we are left. We are left with Darrow stabbed through the gut by Cassius. Hypocritical piece of shit that he is. I can tell you're a big Cassius fan. Listen, at this point, I am not a Cassius fan at all. Is anybody? Is anybody? Because he has... I'm sure his uh, parents like him a great deal. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Only if he does well. I imagine Severo doesn't, and that's really all that matters. <laughs> okay, so on that note, closing out with, it's not so much a quote as a passage. Fitchner has a tete-a-tete with Darrow, and Fitchner says, I think you are an ancient soul. I think you're like that beast out there. He's talking about a wolf. Part of a pack, but deeply sad, deeply alone. And I can't puzzle out why, my dear boy. This is all so much fun. Enjoy it. Life doesn't get better. And Darrow just says, mm, you're the same. Lonely. You're all japes and snide comments, just like Severo, but it's just a mask. It's because you don't look like the others, isn't it? Or are you poor? Somehow, you're an outsider. And I'm just going to leave you guys with that for tonight. As we close out this episode, just want to give a shout out to our Heroes Tier patron, Tommy of the TKOK Podcast Network. Thank you so much for supporting us. Once again, I'm Tara, along with fellow hosts Nick and Jonathan. Don't forget that you can always hit us up at Sagas and Sass on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or email us at sagasandsass at gmail.com with any comments or thoughts you might have. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We'll be back Wednesday, October 19th to cover part four of Red Rising, which is titled Reaper. Thank you for listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Sagas and Sass.